You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters, but in this episode, we continue our mini-series on magic. In our last episode, we began a two-part interview on grimoires, books of magic, in Western European tradition, with Jerry Drake, a data scientist and former professor who now works for the U.S. State Department. As a reminder, the comments and information Jerry talks about in this episode are based on his own research, and he's not here representing any official government position about these topics. If you haven't heard part one of this interview, I'd urge you to go back and listen to that first, but just in case you missed it, in that portion of the interview, we contextualize the grimoire that one sees in horror films, TV shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and in fiction such as the Necronomicon, as being primarily a construct of the 18th and 19th century in Europe. We talked about how the majority of the books were not diabolic in nature, but rather used magic as an extension of Judeo-Christian tradition, and that magic was essentially a technology. Prior to the ascension of the scientific method for filtering out what technologies actually work from those which only sometimes seem to work, most scholars with the means to assemble a library would have included some books of magic and esoterica alongside their natural science collection without seeing this as a clashing approach to understanding the world. So now let's hop into part two of our interview with Jerry Drake. You're listening to Monster Talk. Jerry, how does the grimoire interface with coded texts like the view of some holy books as seen by the Kabbalah? Oh, my God. See, that's what's really interesting is grimoire, as we know them, are typically not particularly coded. 
they are actually there for you to interpret the information and to use it. And that's especially true of these books we might call leech books, which were really popular in the Anglo-Saxon world. If you ever get a chance to look up uh, a leech book, let me see if I can remember a couple. Do I own one? Yeah. Um, there's a couple of Anglo-Saxon leech books that are really weird. Um, leech comes from actual leech, the thing that locks onto you and sucks your blood. Um, leechers in the old days were doctors, right? So a leech book is a doctor book. These books had magic spells, recipes, um, chemical formulae that you could use to actually make um, poultices and boluses in order to cure people. And uh, they, they weren't coded at all. Uh, a lot of them were based on um, Enochian magical traditions. Um, but a lot of them were based on just trial and error, pre-scientific scientific method. Um, the same is true for our later folk magic books, uh, Pow Wow Magic, The Long Lost Friend that the German uh, Hexenmeisters used in places like Pennsylvania and the area I'm from in central Texas and uh, Goshen, Indiana, those kind of places. They were not meant to be coded books. They were meant to actually be taken down, read, and practiced. The Kabbalah... Uh, a lot of the Gnostic texts, the, unfortunately, the very few that still survive that are in places like the Nag Hammadi Library or the Dead Sea Scrolls, are meant to be mysterious texts. They're meant to not be easily understandable. And then, of course, if you ever have a chance to look at an alchemical tractate, they're completely illegible. I mean, uh, you would have to learn how to read the code that those things are written in in order to understand them. And I think the, the most famous of those uh, whatever the hell it is, is the Voynich manuscript that's in the Beinecke Red Book Library up in Yale University. I was and just going to ask you about that. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know. Do you know. have any theories on uh, on the, the writing system? And... I have spent <sighs> the better part of my years, when I want something to do, I take down the Voynich manuscript and play around with it. And I've put, put it through some of my computer software that we've done at work. I have very good friends in the community that have looked at this thing. It's often a book that a young um, signal uh, uh, intel experts will take a look at. The theory that I have is that it does not contain natural language. And natural language is what uh, the first thing that you're going to look for whenever you start to try to decode a, uh, a cipher or something that's hidden. Uh, probably one of the most famous um, examples of this are the Beale ciphers uh, that are famous here in the U.S. where supposedly there's a treasure hidden in uh, northern Virginia uh, by this guy, I think his name is John Beale, uh, where he dug up all this gold and planted it. And there were three ciphers left behind. And one of them, the Declaration of Independence, could be used to transfer it. When we look at those other ciphers, uh, we can tell that there's no natural language present. Someone is simply writing random scripts. Um, when we look at the Zodiac text... Wait, 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 wait. Um, so do you, you yeah. mean there's no treasure? There's no treasure. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> the treasure was the uh, the money made from... Selling the, right, selling the treasure map. Yeah. <laughs> the lucrative so whenever we look business. at the Zodiac text, however, there's natural language there. It follows the pattern of English grammar. We just can't fully decode what's there. The Voynich manuscript, if it contains natural language... It has to be probably Latin, rendered into a colloquial language, I think Italian, 
and then translated into the Voynich script. Uh, the reason why I think it might be Italian is because some of the illuminations in the book clearly show uh, Italianate architecture um, that, again, you can identify if you spend enough time poking around. But I am not entirely convinced that the Voynich manuscript contains natural language. And but you don't think it's a hoax as such? I think it is a hoax, but I think it's okay. a medieval hoax. A lot of these books are, are hoaxes. A lot of grimoire, a lot of these magic books were things that printers and scholars at the time just flat made up to make a buck. And you could go, hey, look at what I've got here. I've got this famous, you know, text by, you know, Hermes Trismegistus. I found it, you know, in this monastery in Poland and I've translated into Latin and I've translated into Italian and you can buy it from me, you know, to have in your palatial library, you know, Enrique Sforza. Um, and I think that's what this thing was. And there's a lot of exam examples examples of that. Have you guys heard of the Codex Gigas? Yes. It's this giant yes. book. It's it's really stupid looking. It's this enormous book. It was clearly made by somebody who was in the laity, not a real scholastic bookmaker. And it's got a picture of the devil in it. It's called the Devil's Bible by some people. And it was probably created just so that monastery could have a really cool book. Um, and that's the way it worked. Like if you had a cool occult book in your famous library, you know, you would pour some port or some, you know, brandy and bring the, you know, the fire and brimstone boys over to the house and bring them down to the library and show this stuff off. And every library, you know, if you read, you know, M.R. James is kind of one of my scholastic inspirations. If you read his stuff, you know, one of the things he was really interested in was cataloging old libraries. And he would always find 25, 30 really rare occult books in every library that he went to look at. And that's certainly true because these things were considered cool by, by standards of the day. I mean, that's why I collect them because they're, yeah. they're cool, right? <laughs> so that, that didn't change. So I think that the Voynich manuscript is probably along those lines. Well, do you, we know, okay. do we have enough market data about what things were going for at the time to see if there was more like, I, you know, if I'd prepared for that, I have this information, but the Voynich manuscript was valuable in its day. Yeah, that's what I was like curious it, about. It yeah. sold for some bucks. But, you know, an illuminated manuscript, like, in the Renaissance, cost more than a year's income for an average person. I mean, I can't think of anything today that would sell that's so mundane. Like, we're talking about something that's the price of a car, you know, the price of a house, to have some of these books. And some of the ones that sell today go for $25,000, $50,000. And that's less than what they would have sold for at the time, just because the labor was so intensive. That's why movable type and the Gutenberg revolution was so important, because it made reading available to a market, that a nouveau riche market, that uh, previously only the, the wealthiest people in society could afford. That is awesome. Um, when we were just talking a little bit earlier about uh, science and, and, and modern books today, historically with these earlier texts, did the, the written word have particular credibility for the general public? Um, the way that books are seen today, they're seen as being gospel. If something's written in a book, it's often seen as, as having credibility. Uh, is it the same perspective that people oh. had historically about these books? So this is something, this actually is something I dealt with in my dissertation work, so we're, we're sort of swinging back here. The written word has always had more credibility than the spoken word because of the permanence of it. 
And the idea in the Middle Ages, you don't forget, you know, we, we had this period of, of Roman rule that lasted over a thousand years where Rome defined the, you know, the Hellenistic and the European universe. And then in China, you had a dynastic, a series of dynastic empires that lasted for thousands of years, dynastic empires in Egypt, dynastic empires in Japan. And when those falter, one of the first things that was lost in the ancient world was the ability to read and write. So writing and reading are, have always been considered elitist and, and intellectual and esoteric. Uh, during the what we call the Great Dark Age of the ancient world, when um, the Hellenistic world faltered and Greek colonies sort of rose to power, uh, that was the time period when the Homerian epics were first uh, said and, and began to be written down. A writing had faltered. So there's always been this idea that the past had better knowledge, they had better ideas, they had better access to skills and writing ability, and being able to read that knowledge somehow made you smarter, better, and more intelligent. So by necessity, writing has always carried with it an, a level of authority that speaking uh, didn't have. And I think that was true right up until the great information uh, revolution that we are experiencing now. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember Alvin Toffler, who everybody in the world read back in the 70s. The third wave. Third wave. And he postulated that we would get to a point where the average human being would consume so much information, they wouldn't be able to handle it, and they would short out. And what we've actually discovered is that the opposite is true. We're so bombarded with information now that we just pick what we want, right? Like, if I don't like the idea that global warming's um, real, I can go to a website and find something that looks like a scientific paper that says it's not. Or if I don't like X thesis or X idea or the, the idea that evolution is real, I can go to Answers in Genesis and I can find me a, a cited paper that says that, you know, the universe was created in six days, blah, blah, blah. And the Grand Canyon is absolute proof of that. So we still appeal to authority uh, based on the written word, even in this area where information is supposed to be uh, completely democratized. This actually came up this morning on my morning walk. I was thinking about uh, uh, the com the difference between cults and religions. And a lot of cults come and go, or they you know survive five, ten, fifteen years, and, and they're they're really tied up with a, a personality. And it's not so much about whether their belief system is fringy or not. It's it's more about this this piece is missing, most cultists don't take the time to codify their belief system into a giant written text. Right. And so you can sort of end up with this sort of survivor fallacy where uh, the, the religions that don't make it don't have texts that survive, right? So uh, there's very few large world religions which lack uh, a, a big system of written uh, records. And I was wondering about that maybe we're, the, these other religions would be just as uh, long-lasting if they had bothered to, to build up a text base. You know, it's that, that, or, that lasting uh, ability to share your ideas beyond the life of the leader. I was just saying, just like L. Ron Hubbard, I was just thinking about uh, Scientology and um, there's, a, there's a cult that has been raised as a religion to a religion by With some. lots of words on paper, right? That's the problem, yeah. though, is that maybe if, if your text base is so boring, you know, like Ron Hubbard's is, <laughs> you might not be able to get through it. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. You know, I someday when I retire, I, I want to write a book called uh, The Most Valuable Book in the World. 
And it's, I, I want to write about sort of the most important missing manuscripts in history. And, and one of those would be uh, the manuscript that the New Testament is based on. It's called the Q source, which is German for Kella, which just means source, the source source. And it was a book of sayings that the Synoptic Gospels was basically, was essentially based on. So this would have been, there's a book of sayings of Jesus' sayings in the um, Quran. Uh, the Q source was probably along those lines. Um, and it would have just been verbatim stuff that the prophet we know as Jesus would have said. And as we know, the Synoptic Gospels were all written a couple of centuries after Jesus died, if he even lived at all. I'm one of those weirdos that doesn't even think he needed to exist in order to be uh, the basis for a religion. Well, I mean, to write a book about somebody based on the written word, that would be like us writing a biography of George Washington or, um, man, somebody even older than that, George I of England, without having any written sources, just by asking people who lived in his town what he was like. So the Q source is a tremendously important uh, manuscript, and you're absolutely right. That's the reason why we don't still practice um, Mithraism, which is a religion that looked very much like Christianity and probably influenced Christianity because they were such a mystery cult, they never wrote anything down. And the same is true of the great Celtic and Germanic uh, religions. Most of the stuff that we know about what we call the Woden religion um, is, was written down by Christians. What we know about um, the ancient uh, Celtic faith um, what people know about um, the Druidic faith is only known by the people who conquered those folks. Caesar in his uh, uh, chronicles, uh, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, some of those kind of books. So because we don't have a preservation of those texts, we kind of have to make one up if we want to pretend to be um, uh, Woden worshippers now or you know Druids in the modern world. And that's certainly what, I mean, I hate to Godwin the thread, but you know that's certainly what Hitler did. You know, he wanted he wanted to go back to the old Germanic religion. Well, nobody ever wrote it down, so we'll just found the Ananurba and invent our own. And on a much nicer side of that uh, pancake, um, that's what Wicca is. You know, you had people uh, who got a very a real interest in ancient um, English and Britannic and Celtic religion and formed a, a new faith out of that. And that's what Asatru is in Iceland and in the Nordic countries. It's an attempt to sort of resurrect these old religions, but they don't have a text in hand. And I think you're absolutely right. That's why I think even us skeptics go kind of, I mean, we do it too. We sort of look at them sideways and go, ah, oh, you're not real because you're not rooted in this sort of ancient tradition. And you're absolutely right. It's because the ancient tradition wasn't written. So they don't have a text that they can go to to, to show this tie to them. I mean, I don't know what we have left of the Babylonians' uh, religion, but, I mean, obviously it gets mentioned a lot in the Bible. I, I assume it was a full, sure. rich, you know, well-developed religion, but I, I just, you know, it, it doesn't... Uh, there, there's so many lost religions that, that probably had their own interesting takes on everything. I'm, I'm, I guess I don't want this to get into a giant religious discussion, but it seems like these, the, to tie it back to grimoires... It all ties back together that, that you know, Karen's a linguist. She knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> language is our best way of sharing ideas, and, and written language uh, it seems to be the best way of preserving those ideas. But even those get uh, morphed over time. So, Well, we can't read um, uh, Rapa Nui 
text. They have a they obviously we still don't know what the Moai were all about. We can read Rapa Nui, we won't know Easter Island. We can't read uh, Minoan Crete, the earliest version of that. So the whole bull worship faith, we don't know anything about that. And then you have all these traditions where it just wasn't written down. I mean, probably the one that bugs me the most is uh, over in Asia Minor. You have these uh, uh, places where we were building standing stone monuments uh, years and years before civilization was traditionally thought to even begun. That was clearly a religious movement. Uh, the Pictish uh, uh, language, what little we have of it on their standing stones has never been interpreted. So there is actually a whole universe of of, of culture and religion out there that we know about that we have no idea what what it meant and i think you're exactly right the big three you know judaism islam christianity and if we add in buddhism you know have all been preserved because they have a rich written tradition the thing that i find interesting are sort of those uh what i call occult traditions that hang on to the side kabbalah gnosticism these were competing versions of those faiths at the time, and they didn't win. You know, if 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 you know Gnosticism had won out over Catholicism, we would live in a very different Western tradition right now. And at one time, Gnosticism was probably the more ascendant version of the Jesus movement, but they handled things differently. They didn't value <laughs> yeah, procreation the way sort of a, uh, a, a si sideline. If <laughs> you, you know, if your religion yeah. requires you not to reproduce, that's uh, a bad way to propagate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not a growth industry. So, and that's exactly true. So, I mean, if we could, you know, this is why history is not a science because we can't go back to then and rerun the experiment and see what would happen if you know um, Rome had adopted the Gnostic version of the uh, of the faith instead of the the version that was on offer in Rome. So. Yeah, but you're right. And the whole concept of Kabbalah is founded on the power of the word. I mean, the very first phrase in the Bible resorts to the power of the word is spoken by God. In fact, the whole concept of the name of God in Judaism as a word of power, as a magical symbol, is uh, is is invested in, in Jewish tradition. And if you read the Mishnah, you know, the various tractates that make it up, that's what they're all about you know, is playing around with words, playing around with language. They were extremely keen on understanding how powerful language is. And it's not really until the 20th century when philosophers start to grapple with that. You know, does thought precede language? Does language precede thought? I mean, obviously, Karen probably knows more about this than I do, but, you know, the concept... Oh, it's not my specific area, but uh, certainly, yeah, I... I, I wanted to ask another question, but I should let you finish first. No, 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 go right ahead. But yeah, I just want to underscore, that's exactly right. Grimoires what? were seen as manuals. Um, other occult books were seen as technology in themselves. I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about the, the language of these magical texts. And sure. we talked a bit about the Voynich manuscript and how that's probably an artificial language of some kind. And uh, I've, if I can plug a book that I wrote a number of years ago, uh, Language, Myths, Mysteries and Magic, I write in there about how with a lot of uh, folk medicine books about folk medicine and uh, curses and, and things like that, they were often written in dead languages like uh, Etruscan right. or Latin um, and often gibberish was used instead, just rhyming language, things that sounded pseudo-Latin were often deemed to be magical and to, to be powerful words. Um, so if you could maybe talk a little bit about the, the kinds of language that we used in these sure. grimoires. Absolutely. And, I mean, 
you know, I, having come up in that sort of seven-day Adventist uh, charismatic Pentecostal tradition, uh, glossolalia is a big thing. You know, as they say, if you ain't got tongues, you ain't got nothing. So the whole idea is that you would sort of be possessed by the power of the Spirit, and then you would start to babble off in languages you'd never spoken. That phenomenon is called glossolalia, you know, to start just blabbing off in stuff that sounds like some ancient dead language. And I think that adds to the concept of the mystery. Somebody, I, I can't remember who, maybe it was even on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, said that Latin is the natural language of magic. And I think that's true. Latin, as we speak it to say magical stuff, just sounds cool. And we've all been primed for that, right? Like, you know, you go back and watch a movie like The Dunwich Horror and Henry Armitage starts to yell out and he's speaking in some foreign language, you know, and it's always Latin and, you know... That's one of the things that always disappoints me about old Dennis Wheatley novels is that he says all the magical incantations in English and they sound really cheesy. You know, <laughs> do you I think mean, it has something to do with uh, just even uh, religion and, and the church and uh, exorcisms yeah. being performed well, in, in I mean, Latin? And let me ask you this: Does does opera sound better in German and Italian or English? Like, there's something about it when you don't <laughs> understand the words. <laughs> Exoticness. It's got an exotic next to it, and that's exactly right. It's it's esoteric. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, Latin was the lingua franca of Europe for <laughs> the entire Roman period and, and the entire um, Middle Ages. I mean, they had to have a common language the way English is, you know, God help us, the common language of the world today, <laughs> whether you, you know, sort of like that or not. Um, Latin was the language of the world for, for a long, long time. So most books were written in Latin or a form of Latin as a way to... Uh, have a universal way of communicating. Latin, you know, as as we studied, or I studied in college, and in undergrad, you know, um, was Roman Latin, high Latin from the Roman um, imperial period, as written down. So I could take down a book today, you know, Caesar's Chronicles, and it would it would be legible to anybody who had had high school Latin. Um, medieval Latin, especially late medieval Latin, doesn't look like Latin at all. In fact, the alphabet barely looks like Latin, even though it's the same alphabet that we use to write English today, because Latin, like all languages, evolved. You know, if we were to go back 300 years, English wouldn't sound like English as we speak it today, you know. And in fact, I spent a lot of time you know, working on Icelandic and uh, uh, Old English, and the 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 crossovers, the deltas between Icelandic and Old English are closer, I think, than modern English and Old English. Um, and the same was true for Latin. A Roman emperor would not be able to read 13th century Latin. And the chief reason why is because the vocabulary had got much bigger and the syntax of the language uh, was modified to match the syntax of the language of the local speaker. So a monk in France writing in Latin was going to use French grammar using Latin words. A monk writing in northern Italy in the 10th century would use an Etruscan slash Italian grammar um, with Latin words. A Sicilian monk would use a Sicilian slash Italian grammar with Latin words. An English uh, monk writing in Latin who had been trained in English um, in places like Oxford and Cambridge 
would use a really gross and disgusting English grammar <laughs> to write Latin <laughs> words. And it's almost indescribable. And in the mm. 19th century, you had scholars, you know, again, we can harken back to M.R. James, who took the time to actually learn how to read Latin in its various verses. So when I sit down with a Latin text today, the first thing I do is go, okay, I've got a sentence. I don't have any periods because there's no periods. It's all a run-on sentence. So I've got to find sort of the breaks. I have to translate the individual words. Then I have to understand the grammar the author was trying to use and then reconstruct that text into something that I can read. Um, that's very different from reading actual Roman Latin in where the grammar rules actually follow the rules of grammar. So I think because of all that, to us in 2017 who don't have the benefit of having been trained in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and all that in the school system like you know people in the 19th century were, it seems even more weird, classical, and, and antique. So it, it sort of adds to the mystery. And one of the most disappointing things in the world is when you actually translate these grimoires into English and see how boring, <laughs> you know, boring they are. They actually sound much better when you read them in their original language. I'm sure here, yeah, that exotic element again. So there's diabolic and non-diabolic texts, but what was actually in these books? What could you do with them? Like what kind of spells are actually in there for you if you actually bother to find one? You know, I, I feel like I've answered every one of these questions by being vague and it's difficult because this is such a big topic. You know, I really wished the world was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer where for some reason a high school has an ancient, you know, rare book library and there are only five grimoires. The reality is, is these things were super popular and there, there are hundreds of them. And at the time there were probably thousands. The reality is, is that in most grimoires, they're, they're super mundane. I, I, I mean, there's, no, there's a reason why H.P. Lovecraft invented the Necronomicon, because there's no grimoire out there, with the possible exception of the Grand Grimoire, that says what we in 2017 want it to say. And most of them follow a pretty, um, a pretty standard pattern. Uh, the really basic ones, um, the stuff based on the Books of Moses, the, the, uh, the powwow book, you know, that kind of stuff. The leech books are just recipe books. You'll find a recipe for how to make beer. The next recipe will be how to purify yourself so you can go out under the full moon and have a male child uh, as part of your pregnancy. Then the next one will be how to make a bolus to cure worms. And then the one after that will be how to um, summon a, 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 a nature force uh, to deal with a fairy who is turning your cow's milk into uh, spoiled butter. Um, those are very, very basic folk magic grimoires. The more esoteric grimoires follow that same pattern, and they typically set up this huge set of rules that the magus has to follow to get ready to do the magic. You know, Alistair Crowley, whenever he was living at Bolskin House, spent in Scotland, spent something like six or eight months getting ready to do his rituals. Uh, some of these uh, ritual magicians would have to spend a year or more purifying themselves not engaging, engaging in sexual activity, eating a certain diet, wearing white clothing, all this stuff to get ready. So the book teaches the magus how to ready their mind and body for the ritual, and then it outlays the ritual. Uh, you might have to draw a magic circle. You might have to draw a bunch of magic figures. You have to bring certain stuff together to make a potion. 
Uh, you have to invoke various figures to the four winds. And they're always very, very difficult. There are things where you have to assemble certain moving pieces. Uh, you have to get some stuff together to do it. And my theory is, is if this stuff were easy to do, people would do it and then realize it didn't work. So in order to have a good grimoire, you it had to be just plausible enough to sell but just difficult enough to make it something that somebody wouldn't necessarily want to do. Um, the Grand Grimoire, uh, which is absolutely my personal favorite, I keep talking about it, literally teaches you how to summon Satan. And, you know, even as a broke college student back in the 90s, I was able to put together the junk I needed to summon Satan. Didn't work, but, you know, I think most people in the early 19th century would be so put off by the, the concept of summoning the devil uh, that they wouldn't want to do it. But that's the typical way these grimoires break down. How to prepare your body and mind is a mad, is a magus, and then the actual mechanics of performing the ritual. And then once the ritual is performed, it teaches you how to keep yourself safe whenever you're either wielding the the natural forces or the the diabolic forces. So did did you have a plan if it had worked? Like what were you going to do with Satan if you pulled him up? Uh, probably ask for college money because that's yeah. the thing I needed the most. I needed you know. I needed college money, I needed Pearl beer, and I needed a place to stay. So I, we were going to knock that out first. Um, we all had girlfriends at the time, so we weren't going in that direction. But mostly, you know, uh, I mean, you only call up Satan when you need pretty basic stuff, right? So that was the plan. But he didn't show. One thing I want to say, though, and this freaks me out, Blake, the place where we did our ritual, I will not... I will not mention the names of my friends who joined me in this, but they are still Facebook friends of mine, um, and they will probably listen to this podcast, um, but they have respectable jobs now, was a place called Goat's, Goatman's Bridge, north of Dallas in Alton, uh, in Denton County. I went to the University of North Texas in Denton as my undergraduate college. Damn it all, if last year uh, Zach Baggins didn't go there and do a uh, demonic summoning himself, and it freaked freaked us out. My sister saw it. I don't watch that damn show. My sister saw it. She lives right by there and said, I literally got a Facebook message where she said, hey, Zach Baggins is at that spot where you tried to summon a demon back in 1990. <laughs> and I, I, we tuned in. We watched the re episode. And it was like, wow, that was the exact spot. You know, we I took a bunch of 110 photographs of that. I mean, we, we, we thought we were the Ghostbusters, you know. We brought out whatever cotton sack scientific equipment we had and, and you know, set up my dad's video camera and all this stuff. And we, we took it super seriously. I think I even put on a suit. It was it was totally ridiculous. So I was happy to see that I was I was Zach Baggins before uh, before it was cool. Well, you had me wondering, I mean, is it possible that you accidentally summoned Zach Baggins? It just took a while to take effect. <laughs> it took a while for him to show up and, and based on our commitment to that project Zach Baggins would be the quality of demon I think a bunch of drunk uh, freshman college students would summon yeah, I, I know we're joking and a lot of people take this very very seriously I know I know absolutely it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So let's talk a little bit about the way that grimoires are viewed in particular fields uh, or in, in belief systems. So this will be bulleted a little bit. So let's let's uh, don't dig too deep in these, but maybe it'll open up some additional threads sure. of discussion. So first of all, spell books as used by cunning folk in uh, medieval Europe. Have you, how did that play out? I am fascinated by the Anglo-Saxon leech books and the books that came across lately. I think, don't quote me, but I think either the University of Sheffield or one of those sort of second, oh, second tier is the wrong word, but non-Oxbridge universities in England have actually um, taken some of those leech books and actually found that some of the formulas in their work, um, some of the antibiotic properties of the poultices and boluses that are in there, um, they have actually discovered, uh, actually do what they're supposed to do. And they're nestled up right next to... Um, bizarre magical uh, incantations that deal with fairy lore and and other practices of sympathetic magic. So I think the idea was that medicine was very primitive until essentially the 20th century. I mean, you know, until germ theory was developed, we really could only hit or miss at what, you know, was the underlying cause of disease. I think it was 1920 or 1921 before uh, contagious disease uh, was finally... Uh, the second number one cause of death in the United States after the Spanish flu and and uh, you know other forms of disease started to take their place. Nobody dies of contagious disease hardly anymore unless they're old or have an immune system problem. So the idea that you could put some some root or mushroom or something in your body and fix yourself was pretty powerful uh, connotation. So I think this tradition of cunning people developed. Um, around that kind of uh, that kind of tradition. I mean, I suffered terribly from bronchitis whenever I was a kid, and it was my aunt, who was an admitted cunning woman, who told me that I should use um, eucalyptus as a way to treat bronchitis instead of the uh, the medicines that I was taking. And you know, she was always blessing my shoes, and you know, gave me a rope belt to wear um, that would guarantee prosperity and. I mean, she knew how to use tobacco to cure stomach upset and all these different things. And, you know, stomach upset in those days was worms and the tobacco juice would uh, purge a body of worms. So I think there was this tradition of cunning, quote unquote, magic that was really sort of folk remedy, uh, folk medicine and folk magic that had been passed down. Now, we had a scholar uh, whose name was Margaret Murray, who sort of, I think, in retrospect, misinterpreted that 
as what she called the witch cult in Europe. She wrote this famous book called The Witch Cult uh, in, in Europe, where she determined through her anthropological research that a folk tradition of, of witchcraft and magic had persisted in Europe that had, you know, sort of survived um, the introduction of Christianity into um, into um, into England specifically, but mostly in Western Europe. Yeah, that book came out in 1921. It was called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. It's been heavily panned now, but I, I don't think it was entirely wrong. I think there were some folk magic traditions that survived in British Isles in Western Europe that migrated to places uh, like Appalachia, the American South, uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch region, and because of the isolated nature of those places, survived. And, you know, that tradition goes back, way on back, especially if you look at some of these leech books from the Ang Anglo-Saxon period. Some of the spells and cures in them are identical to what you would find in The Long Lost Friend, which is essentially a 19th century manuscript. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute, the uh, the spell books of the Pennsylvania Dutch Hexameisters. Yeah, absolutely. Man, Those that is what I'm working on right now. When we moved to Washington, D.C. about nine years ago, you know, York County, which is right across the border, like, you know, I call it the York Triangle. Maybe I'll write a book called that, so don't, uh, don't take that I, from I, me, Blake. I won't steal um, it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these areas uh, that people ascribe a lot of high strangeness. Um, the Seven Gates of Hell, the famous Seven Gates of Hell are there, and they have a weird Bigfoot tradition out at this place called Chickie's Rock called the Alba Twitch. Um, and, you know, there's one of my very dear friends that I've met there in York is a dyed-in-the-wool Bigfoot hunter, and he has his own podcast, and we talk about this stuff a lot, you know, me from the skeptical perspective. And so York County, uh, Adams County, and Lancaster County there in Pennsylvania have this rich tradition of Pennsylvania folk magic that comes from the Mennonites and the Amish that immigrated there in the 19th century. And one of those is the concept of Hexenmeistery. Uh, Hexen, uh, Hexenmeister, that basically just translates into English as uh, witch. And they based their uh, religious tradition or their their uh, magical tradition on the sixth and seventh book of Solomon, or excuse me, of Moses. And the reason why I got into that is because that's the same book that you know my great grandfather and my aunt used to do their um, magical rituals. So, you know, whenever I discovered that there was this connection between the Tennessee River Valley and uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch, I got super excited about it. And what's famous about York County is it's the it's the place where in the early 19th century we had the last great sort of witch trial in American history. A guy named John Blymeyer was, who was a hexenmeister, was killed by um, a guy he supposedly put a hex on. And if you go back and look at the German language newspapers uh, from that time period in York and Lancaster County, you know, hexenmeisters were openly advertising their um, wares in the paper. The most famous was a woman uh, who... Uh, is known to us as the River Witch of Marietta, and she supposedly is the person who outed, you know, John Blymeyer as an evil magician. Uh, he lived in a place that we now know as Hex Hollow. It was called Blymeyer's Hollow in the old days. It's still a super creepy spot to go, and there's all kinds of weird lore about it. And you know, uh, it looks just like it did in the 1700s. Um, his house is still there. His family's preserved it like it happened yesterday. Um, but. You know, basically, he was a guy who supposedly used his grimoire, which in this case was um, the long lost friend or the powwow book, uh, to put a hex on some folks. And one of his alleged victims 
uh, came to his place, beat him to death, burned his book. The family has preserved even the spot on the floor where his book was burned. The murderer was tried um, and uh, sentenced, and that forced sort of the uh, uh, Hex and Maestri uh, tradition in York and Lancaster counties to go underground. But I know people in York County that still consider themselves Hexenmeisters. I mean, you don't have to, I mean, you, you, you drink in enough German bars there, and you'll, you'll meet some of these folks <laughs> after a little while. And I mean, this tradition is a main line back, you know, to 10th century Germany. And I just, I find that incredibly exciting. And I, I find it a little bit sad because there's, you know, because it's so outside the purview of what legitimate scholars find interesting now that nobody's really up there collecting the stories it's up to the you know the paranormal investigators to do this now and i'm not entirely con- convinced they're equipped yeah. to do it so just pr- pronunciation is john blymeyer believed he had been cursed by nelson was it rymeyer Ray, Ray, Ray Ray no yeah okay that's correct that's correct sorry i got that backwards it was John Blymeyer that believed he had been cursed. He believed he had been cursed by Nelson Raymeyer, who lived in Hex Hollow, which we knew as Raymeyer's Hollow. Yeah, Blymeyer, Raymeyer. Uh, there's a lot so of it's that. Like, going it's, on. A, it's a quagmire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a quagmire. Yeah, of, of Meyer. That's funny, but, but it's a very serious case, though. It, it was like a quite a big story in the newspapers at the time. It was huge. I mean, if you go over, go to the Library of Congress's sort of open source newspaper. A thing and put in York County, you know, quote, which you'll get hundreds of, of stories. It, it was a it was a nationwide story. And it had time. a big impact on the Hexenmeister uh, cultural community, right? It disappeared overnight. It went underground. I mean, you can find if you go to the York County Historical Society, you can find pictures of old businesses where people were advertising Hexenmeister in the, the the windows of shops, you know, on the main street in York, on Queen Street and King Street. And in overnight, it, it went completely underground. But it's still there. I mean, you go. I know of one palmistrist um, in the north part of Young County, York County, that is a, a hexenmeister. I mean, you go in and talk to her, and that's what that's what so she does. So let's talk. Uh, so hopping all over the place again. Uh, let's talk about uh, spell books within esoteric orders. Uh, like I'm thinking here about things like Thelema or Golden Dawn. Sure, absolutely. I've actually got right here the ginormous, I know you can't see this, uh, this is one of my favorite books in the world, The Complete Golden Dawn System of Magic by Israel Rigardi. And if anybody ever breaks into my house, this will be the, the book I use as a uh, 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 bulletproof <laughs> vest. It's about six inches thick. And, I mean, it is the complete compendium. It's an eight-volume set in one volume. A complete compendium of all of essentially the Golden Dawn's magical rituals. And this reads like the grimoire that you want to read. As a Dungeons and Dragons player or as a fan of Lovecraft or, or M.R. James, if you can imagine a grimoire in your mind, this would be the book. It's got all the great stuff, you know, all the great rituals. They're very pompously written. They summon demons, they summon angels. You know, I just it's one of those things, you know, it's almost like like a cult pornography, you know, open any page and point to something and you'll get something <laughs> uh, beautiful. Here's one in the name of the Lord of the universe and by command of the very honored Hierophant. Hear all ye that I proclaim that name of the aspirant 
will hereafter be known unto you by the motto XYZ has been admitted in due form to the neophyte grade of the order of the golden dawn in the outer. And everyone claps their hands. I mean, it's just this beautifully written nonsense, but it is the, um, the grimoire that late 19th century people wanted to read. It, it's, it's their Necronomicon. And, you know, obviously the Masons have their own uh, rituals that they use that are all based on those kinds of ancient texts, or at least what Albert Pike interpreted to be ancient texts. He was sort of the father of uh, ritual magic in Scottish Rite Masonry. And the Ordo Templis Orientis, uh, the Golden Dawn, Thalima, Crowley had an amazing amount of influence in all of those. Uh, he was an extremely gifted writer, if, even if he was an extremely notorious son of a bitch. Came up with just some beautiful rituals, but the reality is they're all modern. I mean, they're based on what these guys thought was channeled wisdom from the ancients. The greatest gift that Helena Blavatsky gave to the world was the idea that you did not need ancient texts to transmit ancient wisdom. That Gnosticism was still valuable, it was still real, and if you got yourself into the right kind of mindset, you could channel an ancient text from the secret masters yourself, and you didn't have to go to some lost library in Poland you know, to find an ancient uh, text. And I think that is sort of a, a gap between the mysticism of the, of the ancients, the early 19th century, and the mysticism of the 20th century and 21st century, which, which I would largely categorize as chaos magic, which is this idea that you know, magic doesn't have to work for it to work. Does that make sense? Like a chaos magician, someone's in the tradition of somebody in the tradition of Jack, Jack Parsons, or Israel Regardi, or Kenneth Anger, the filmmaker, um, believe that the ritual itself is not important. It's the fact that you're doing the ritual, that you're saying the words, and that you believe it. You're sort of creating the reality you want, like a tulpa almost, through your will and through your psychic force. So you don't have to have a, a 10th century Arabic manuscript handed down to you in Latin in order to get all the money and chicks and film rights you want. You just have to have your will channeled through the ritual in order to pull it off. So I, I think that's that's what's so beautiful about these these kind of things that people like Crowley were doing, is they were they were turning the magic that they had inherited from their from their predecessors into something that was almost akin to a Nietzschean will to power. We just have to put on the costume, we just have to say the words, and we have to channel our, our force of will into it in order to get the stuff that we want. Yeah, that's actually, uh, we talked about that in the Slenderman episode. We talked with Joe Laycock <laughs> and Natasha Mickles. She's, uh, they've since become married, but she, she talked about the, uh, the idea of tulpas within Buddhism as opposed to how it had been sort of uh, bastardized Com by the... Uh, completely misinterpreted, yeah, yeah. yeah. but absolutely... I think that's fascinating, the theosophy, uh, the way it's had an impact on so many aspects of uh, the paranormal uh, way it's viewed in Western uh, culture. Um, I mean, it really, it's for, for something that most people don't even know about, it, it's had a really outsized footprint on the, uh, on the whole field. You know, I would argue that the stuff that we talk about as magic today, uh, the occult, the esoteric, those concepts are about 125 years old, and they come almost exclusively out of theosophy. I mean, we all think of the magus or the magus as the, you know, the the guy on the rider weight tarot deck with, 
you know, one hand pointed to the heavens and another hand pointed to the ground with the infinity symbol over his head and the tools of his trade laid out before him, you know, as this kind of character that can you know, manipulate the environment using these esoteric forces. Prior to theosophy, I'm not sure that was the way people looked at magic. And in fact, prior to that introduction of the later tarot decks, there was no magus in the card. The, the character that was the magus was actually the Montebank. Of the fraud, the gamester. So in many ways, medieval people, late Renaissance people, had a more skeptical view of pure magic than we do now. Magic and science were completely um, uh, integrated in everybody's worldview, but there, there wasn't a magician. There wasn't a magus. Magic was just a thing you did. And post-theosophy, um, it became a, a separate uh, reality that people now practice. I mean... You know, if you sat down with your accountant and he gave you a bunch of advice on how to invest your 401k and your 403b and then said, yeah, you know, after work tonight, I'm going to go practice a little ritual magic, you probably wouldn't write him a check. <laughs> but in the old days, you know, everybody did magic. It was it was a technology just like anything else. Yeah, I think viewing it as a technology is a is a is an interesting approach because I, I think before, as we mentioned before, before science really came along as a filter, a lot of these things were just as good, right? Everything was just yeah, as good. Yeah, just as good. Try it, take uh, chances. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, one more is, uh, this one's kind of interesting to me, is the spell books uh, as viewed by Wicca and, and neo-paganism. I, I think this might go a little bit to uh, one of our other conversations. Um, the great unfortunate reality of Wicca is that it, it, it so desperately wants an ancient tradition. And the bad news is that people in Western Europe didn't write down their ancient traditions. So, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that are Wiccans, you know, and they're all some of the most beautiful people I've ever known. You know, they're, they don't have the anxiety that I have. They don't have the, you know, the, the moral problems that I have. You know, they have a lot more clarity than most of my Christian friends because they found something that works for them. And I think the endorphins they get from the rituals they do are probably pretty damn sweet. The bad news is, is that Rika is essentially a, a late 19th century, early 20th century tradition because the historical roots that it wants to have um, don't come down to us from the time in the past. So it's been on them to um, create those rituals for themselves. They have a vague notion that it's uh, an idea of goddess worship, an idea of uh, lunar worship. It, it very much elevates the feminine to the forefront rather than the masculine of um, the kind of religions from the Levant. Uh, it's very much about harmony with nature, which makes perfect sense. In the world we live in now where we're so out of harmony with nature, it's I think it's... Uh, an attempt to correct that balance. So a lot of what you get in Wicca are essentially modern versions of the old spell books that would have been created as uh, a part of nature magic. And I think it's a real attempt to preserve that. Uh, you know, I have a good friend who I'll plug here uh, who edits a magazine called Luna Luna, uh, which you can find online, which publishes Wiccan spells and they're beautiful. They're, they're, they're often written by poets and poetesses, uh, and they are meant to be these life-affirming rituals. And in no way are they meant to actually um, carry out the thing that you want. Uh, I, in many ways, I think they almost take the place of psychotherapy. 
It's a way to uh, put your mind right through this ritual process. Masonry does that. Um, whenever I was participating in some thelema, thelemite rituals, you know, 20 years ago, uh, that's essentially what we were doing. We were trying to um, engage in sort of self-perfection, not sympathetic magic. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, one of the great losses is that we don't know what ancient Western European religious practice was, and that's what Wicca is trying to achieve. Again, that's a gift that I think the Office has given to us, this idea that we can invent from whole cloth an ancient tradition that is still rooted in ancient tradition. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's also the um, this Levian Satanism, yeah. which was kind of an atheistic Satanism. I mean, like, it's not as diabolic as I, I imagine most people want to believe it is. There's a huge section of Judeo-Christians who would view Satanism as obviously evil, but that's not the satanic people of Levian uh strain they they tend to be almost like mocking but yet they still contain ritual magic as a psychodrama can you talk about that yeah absolutely you know and and i mean that's what it is and this comes out of that sort of kenneth anger jack parsons alistair crowley tradition of of what i'll call chaos magic though not everybody would apply it to that um but that comes from you know one of the big things about the spiritualist movement in uh the 19th century is that it came up with this sort of what, what we might call word of faith or faith word tradition that we most associate now with uh, uh, Robert Tilton, the minister from my hometown in Dallas, who actually had a ministry called Word of Faith. But it was based on this principle of animal magnetism, uh, which we find recycled essentially all the time. The Secret is based on this uh, principle, that series of books. And it's the idea if you think good thoughts, if you do good things, if you if you visualize in your mind the thing that you want, you'll draw those things to you. If you think negative thoughts or bad thoughts, then you'll draw those things to you. And Anton LaVey very much adopted that worldview. The idea was, look, if I see myself as a powerful person, if I pose as a powerful person and project an illusion of power and control, then that will be reality. If that were true, wouldn't most 17-year-old boys be surrounded by hot women? If it were true, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, again, the thing, but, but, I mean, you know, uh, create your own – I mean, ready player one, right? You create your own reality the way you want it to be. And Anton LaVey embraced that full-tilt boogie. So did, so did Kenneth Anger. So did a lot of these guys. And that's what I really – I mean, the Church of Satan, you're right. It is atheistic Satanism. If you read their basic commandments – I think they're more appealing than the commandments found in Deuteronomy. They're all about, hey, man, you don't come on my property unless you ask. You don't make a sexual advance unless you're asked. You, you, just, you just need to be chill, bro. I mean, they're very appealing. But because they're couched inside that um, transitive, unappealing uh, universe of Satanism, I think a lot of people find it uh, to be uh, something they have to reject. I mean, is it diabolic libertarianism? Is that? <laughs> it's, I think diabolic libertarianism sounds great. Yeah, you know, like... <laughs> I'm not a libertarian, so I'm not going to tell that line. But a lot of stuff that the Satanists do, I mean, they stand up for free speech, individual rights, no sexual harassment. I mean, look at what they spend their money on, you know, trying to, to keep open spaces free for dialogue. Uh, I mean, it ain't that bad. It's just that the thing that people hang up on is this idea that it's connected to Satan. That being said, 
how much of Satan is actually in the Bible? Most of what we know about Satan comes from John Milton, right? I mean, paradise lost, paradise found. Satan is a lawyer in the Bible and in the Quran. He's not a force for any kind of negativity. Everything we know about Satan as a negative force comes from esoterica and, and books outside. Yeah, it's metatext, exactly. We, we talk about that. We actually did an episode on, on the devil, and it's... Uh, right. Uh, I think... I, I, now, to be fair, many people, their view of religion is built on what they're taught via the culture sure. of the church, not through the text of the church, so... Uh, Many people, yeah. I think you mean pretty much everybody. everybody. Yeah, like <laughs> most people don't read the Bible, and even if they do, they don't read the context of how it was written because they view it as a single okay. book rather than a collection of books built over a time. Right? Yeah. So yeah, and that's exactly true. So yeah, but ritual magic is a huge part of modern occultism. Uh, whether it's the you know. The ritual that makes you a Blue Lodge Mason, a Master Mason, a member of the Church of Satan, you know, any of these things. And I think those are about forming community. The idea that you have to learn something that nobody else knows, that you have a secret that nobody else knows, that you, um, you know, have hand signs and costumes that you wear uh, in order to uh, preserve this identity and this information is very appealing. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but... I mean, this is true in the military and in government. Like most top secret, quote unquote, information is boring as hell. But there's all these rituals you go through to have to preserve it. And you have words that you use and, you know, uh, you know, you have genuflections you have to perform in order to, to get access to it. I mean, control of information is extremely powerful on the one hand, but it's also extremely um, binding in terms of creating a, a community. You know, any on the History Channel who wants to talk about space aliens, the first thing out of his mouth is, when I was in the Navy, I had above top secret clearance. No, you didn't, because there is no such thing as above top, top secret clearance. It's top secret, SCI compartmentalized information. There's no higher clearance than top secret. And anybody that had TSSCI knows that. So you immediately know that that guy was lying. Um, <laughs> But the, the reality is that is a way to say I have something that you don't have and I'm a part of this community that you're not a part of. And whether we're talking about the, the Mithraicists of you know, first and second century Rome or you know the modern Satanists, the modern Freemasons, these guys, that's what they got. They've got an esoteric secret that they've got hold of, that they're in control of, and it's a powerful tool for creating community. Well, I'm reminded of uh, when I was in the Navy. I was in the Naval Nuclear Power Program, and uh, where were you stationed at? Were you out at? I was in Orlando. Yeah. Orlando. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was in Nuclear Field A School, I used to go jogging around the Orlando area. And one day when I was jogging, I jogged, and there was a college behind the campus. I don't remember the name of the college. I have to look it up. But the uh, I I jogged over to the campus, and I was like, "Oh, look, they have a library." So I walked into the library. And in the library, in the entrance to the library, they had like a little display, and they had a book, and that book had a uh, – it was all about nuclear power. And the amazing thing was like for me to like go check out my books to uh, just do my regular A school studies, we had to have uh, top secret clearance, and we had to like you know check out our books and check in our books uh, in, in, in compliance with Naval Security Protocol. 
And then in the entrance to the library was a uh, this book that had like a layout of a nuclear power plant that was far more detailed than anything in our in our textbooks. And it was just if you walked into the school, there it was. <laughs> it's like so. Some of this compartmentalization of secrecy is uh, is entirely about the sort of the protocol, but not initially about the content. So that's it's, it's really it's interesting. It's designed to teach you that it's important, right? So that you're always on like. You know that anybody can Google this, but you know access to nuclear basing and construction plans is called Q clearance, and it's managed by the Department of Energy. You know, not the Department of Defense or the intelligence community, and they guard it very heavily. And you know, people who have Q clearance are allowed to see you know things that people who just have regular top secret clearance aren't allowed to see. Again, this isn't classified; you can get it off Google. But it's all—it really is about the access to the information, and I don't want to reduce you know, ritual magic to, you know, topics of national security. But in a world where ritual magic was power, I mean, how different is that from nuclear energy? I mean, most people, I mean, as ritual magic and nuclear energy might as well be the same thing in terms of the, you know, the ability of the individual person to interpret how it actually works. I don't know how a nuclear bomb works and I've had graduate level physics classes. You know, I mean, that's, that's just the reality of it. On the surface, some of this technology looks like magic, and it's it's powerful in its in both its intent and its and in its need for secrecy. So we have a long history of keeping things occult or secret or hidden, and a lot of these textbooks are just a way of, of sort of doing that. This is awesome. I, <laughs> I the amazing thing is we still have. I've got several more episodes based on magic that I want to get sure. to. But but it does have an interesting tie-in to monsters. I mean, there's there's so much of basic monster lore that involves using magic to maintain control or summon monsters. And, sure, uh, golems, especially golems, the monster summoned from a Kabbalistic magical tradition. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Tons of that stuff where you could make yourself a little helper or a big helper out of clay and invest them with the power of the word of God and get them to move around. Yeah. Uh, the uh, oh, We talked about homunculi in one homunculi. of our episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got my favorite pun of the series uh, is the, uh, the the title episode of our homunculus episode. Was, uh, that was uh, Onan the Jar. Onan the Jar Burying. <laughs> <laughs> it really ties a lot of stuff together. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, I'm easily that's, amused. That's exactly right. I I would argue, man, one of the things that really bugs me is you know, before the show we talked a little bit about the old outlift serves in the BBS days. Like you'll run into these UFO guys who are like, Look, man, I believe in space aliens, but Bigfoot's bullet. And it's like okay. <laughs> this is all this is all part of a a sort of unified field theory of 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 sort of you know, occultism prior to the enlightenment, all this, everything was on the table. You know what I mean? Yeah. Principles of the properties of light, alchemy, Bigfoot, sea monsters, all that stuff was a part of the human experience. And in the recent years, we've decided to compartmentalize this stuff based on, you know, these discrete ideas that some of this stuff is objectively factually real and some of it isn't. But for a lot of people, and I think this might be a big problem in our society, determining what's objectively factually real and what isn't is still kind of a problem. But I'm not, I'm not on my soapbox about that because we haven't had enough time yet. It's, 
it's only been 125 to 250 years since we decided that these two universes need to exist separately. Well, one of the interesting things to me is uh, when you view things as technology, I, I mean, I'm working on a book on technology, and so this is kind of near and dear to my heart, but all of it uh, has an evolutionary aspect. So like the natural selection theory of, of Darwin works on these ideas as well. So if if you take the idea that... Uh, that Richard Dawkins' concept of memetics might be a viable way of viewing information sharing, right? And then you you look at um, technology as a way of uh, providing a natural selection uh, application to that. So anything that can be copied and can mutate and then has selective forces acting on it could, in a sense, be viewed as a natural selection process, right? And so I I believe um, effectively technologies that we use, the ones that actually work, are actually the product of an evolutionary process. And, and so I don't think that's figurative. I think it's literal. I think uh, that these uh, sort of uh, come to the... Like the process of innovation uh, in technology is not an entirely artificial process. I think that it's uh, sort of subjected to these sort of natural laws. So uh, Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. we got telephone at the time in human history when telephone was viable. You know, the Greeks right. didn't build telephone because they didn't have wiring. Exactly. But it, this, that concept that. of the adjacent next, that's a, exactly. a, really, a really useful idea that exactly. when, you, when, the, when the technology has reached the point that the elements are available, it will appear whether you it want it to appear. or not. As soon yeah. as you speak it, it will appear. You know, yeah. someone said human cloning 50 years ago. Once that word was uttered, human cloning is almost an in- inevitability. It's an inevitability. It is an inevitability because sooner or later somebody's going to do it. So this is the the question, Jerry, that we like to ask all of our guests. What's your favorite monster? It's reptoids. Uh, The good old uh, David Icke reptoids. Oh, David Icke style, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. We haven't had that before. Well, I am am one. That's why. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was, one of my jobs when I first came to the State Department, I was United States Treaty Archivist, and I did that for two years. And I got a call one day from an English guy. An English guy, I'm, I don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to say who it was, who wanted the treaty between Eisenhower and the gray aliens. Uh, your listeners will be familiar with this. Some people call it the Grenada Treaty, the Guiarda Treaty. It has all kinds of different names. Basically, Ike was not president for a couple of days while he was having a cancer removed. Um, and that's supposedly when the grays made their famous treaty with us. And uh, I had to inform this English caller that I did not have that treaty in the archive because it did not exist and it was a bunch of horseshit. So after about a two hour conversation, I was blatantly accused of being in on it all and a part of the conspiracy. So obviously just decided to own it. I'm, I'm a reptoid. Couple. So they're my favorite monster. <laughs> yeah, we've never interviewed a reptoid before. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I hope I've got the occult knowledge nailed down. I've fully outed myself on this episode. <laughs> a couple of clarifications. We're saying gray aliens, not gray aliens. Uh, and, uh, oh, some, oh, if we were on the Art Bell show, it would definitely be gray aliens, Blake. <laughs> I like the, it. What was the other one? Uh, we're talking about Ike, the president. Uh, but we're oh, also and David Ike, the yeah. conspiracy theorist, right. who yeah, may yeah. or may not yeah. have been the guy I talked to on the yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah, just just for clarification, right? <laughs> that David Ike was never our president, to the best of my knowledge, right? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. who knows? At least not in this reality. Maybe in Chimerica, he is our president. 
Yeah, it could be. I, I know one thing. I also love the color turquoise. And uh, if I think okay. he's missing a huge opportunity to uh, raise his uh, army of followers as Turk warriors. So <laughs> this is this is going to cement my my uh, my a cred as a uh, as a gray or as a as a reptoid. I am tridenopiac. I am cyan blind. I cannot see turquoise. Well, if you were at my house, you would because it's everywhere. But <laughs> to me, it looks like a sick, sad gray color, and Aww. it's a big it's a big problem in my relationship with my wife. Over that is the a heartbreaker. Oh, yeah, it really is. Yeah, we just a new kitten and i named her cyan because that's what color i thought she was and everybody's like Dude, cats don't come in that color and i'm like i'm sorry <laughs> that's what color that cat is <laughs> that's such a pretty name anyway so david Dave, david ike's shirt ain't gonna work on me man i i'm i'm i'm, I'm on top of him that is amazing monster dog you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard part two of our two-part coverage of Grimoires with Jerry Drake. We appreciate Jerry's hard work with the State Department, but do hope he's someday able to publish more of his magic, legends, and monster research. And when he does, hopefully you'll hear about it here on Monster Talk. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to this program. We really appreciate it. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. You know, how, let's do it this way. When, when Blake Smith, when a human being does X, Y, and Z, they end up buying flowers for their wife because they oh, pissed her I, actually, off. Actually, that was the next place I was going was, how can I predict whether I'm going to be or not? That's, Correct. Uh, Correct. So. <laughs>
So I, I think this is one of the things that really underlies where we're going in the national security state. If I can put is, together... If more people in the State Department are concerned about me being... I am very excited about it. My tax dollars at work. 